I believe that if you spend time with these readings, as in from the get-go, starting today, you should find them very easy to grasp and therefore hopefully helpful to use as a spiritual exercise each day this week. As always, those readings are cited in the bulletin. You can open up your Bible at home or just go to our social media and click on the links. The gospel reading we just heard is from the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Mark, the very last part of that chapter. Jesus in this passage leaves from Jewish Galilee and travels to a Gentile area called the area of the Decapolis. It's to the east of the Jordan River. It's a federation of 10 Hellenistic cities, so non-Jewish territory. Jesus has been here previously. In the fifth chapter of Mark, you may remember this, he goes to this area of the Decapolis and he encounters a man who is terribly possessed by an unclean spirit. Remember this guy, he lives outdoors and he bashes himself, he's out of control, he's been suffering for a long, long time. Jesus encounters this stranger to him and Jesus miraculously frees him from the unclean spirit. It's a pretty funky chapter. No one really understands this story. The unclean spirits end up in a dialogue with Jesus. They get thrown by Jesus into a herd of swine. The herd of swine go hurl themselves into the Sea of Galilee and drown. And the people in this area witness this. They see the man who's previously been possessed, and they're filled with fear, understandably. The people beg Jesus to leave their territory. And as he's leaving to go back to Galilee, the man who's been healed pleads with Jesus to take him with him. Jesus tells that man to stay, to go home to his family and friends, and tell them all that the Lord, capital L, meaning God, in his pity has done for him. The man actually does what Jesus tells him to do, and this is in Mark 5. Mark 5 says he goes and he tells people all that Jesus has done for him. It's an interesting thing. Jesus says, tell them what the Lord has done. He says what Jesus has done. He has no idea that Jesus is the Lord. And it says that the people are amazed. So now Jesus goes back to this territory. That man apparently really did do very successfully what Jesus told him to do. Because now in the Decapolis, Jesus has a wide reputation as a healer. The crowd now comes to Jesus and they beg him with a man they bring who is deaf and has a speech impediment to lay his hand on this man. So they had begged Jesus to leave the territory. Now they're begging him to bring his healing power to this man. My presumption, and if it's my presumption, it must be true. My presumption is that Jesus's first disciples had an unusually memorable experience in this, what we hear in this passage because it seems to me that the details are things they went out of their way to pass on. These people, the crowd, are asking for Jesus to lay his hand, singular, on this man. What Jesus gives this man is way, way, way more, and I believe it reveals much more than anyone would expect the depth of Jesus' love. So Jesus first takes the man apart from the crowd to be with him by himself. The only other place in this gospel where Jesus does that, heals somebody taking the person aside, is in the eighth chapter of Mark with a blind man. I bet that was memorable to the disciples. Jesus first takes his finger and he places it in the man's ears. 
Jesus then spits, his own spit, and puts it on the man's tongue. Ugh, where is the Purell? What is going on here? In the ancient Jewish world, in the Greco-Roman world, and in most of this world today, people presume, and I guess it may be true, that saliva has therapeutic qualities. So Jesus is taking part of himself, a healing something, and touching the man. Jesus then groans. He groans. It's the only place in the Scripture where Jesus is said to groan. Again, I think it was memorable. Presumably, he is very moved by what's going on here. He looks up to heaven to his Father, and he says, Epfatha, which is an Aramaic word. Again, probably memorable. They passed on, those disciples, the exact Aramaic word rather than having it translated in Greek in this Scripture. It means be opened. And the man's ears are immediately opened. His speech impediment is taken away, and he speaks clearly. Speech impediment, that word, which is used in that particular story, is only used one other place in the entire Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is used in the reading that we just heard from Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. It's a prophecy eight centuries before Jesus to our Jewish ancestors when they're in exile in Babylon, arguably the lowest point they've ever experienced, in which God says to them in the future, God is going to intervene in this world and save them. And when this takes place, their speech impediment will be taken away, not a physical thing. People who have been unable to speak the word of God will be able to praise God. That prophecy about salvation is what we're seeing in that passage from Mark 7. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's not just a great teacher. He is, in fact, the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. What he does with that stranger, the man who's deaf and the speech impediment, like he did with the other man who was the stranger with the unclean spirit, is to bring him the full power of God's salvation. If that man chooses to become a disciple of Jesus, chooses to learn and live the love of Jesus, he will enter the path of salvation on this planet and eternally. I fully believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior of the world. When I see what he does with that man in that healing story, he doesn't just put a hand on him. He enters into his life. He gives and he gives and he gives. He gives the fullness of his presence. He groans in the midst of this. He lifts this man up to God his Father. He brings this healing power. I believe that that is the revelation of the fullness of God's love, and I know very well I want to become part of that love. My call in life is to try to grow living the love Jesus lives so that I can be part of salvation. You still with me here? Any sincere Christian, and I presume you all are, is supposed to look at the Jesus in that story and recognize that's the kind of love I want to live with strangers and everybody in this world. Okay, combine this. Second reading we just heard is from the generally extremely popular letter of St. James in the New Testament. This is consistently one of the most beloved 
letters in the New Testament because James is a down and dirty Christian. He believes Jesus is the Son of God. He has learned the truth. He's writing around 90 or 100 AD. He has learned the teaching of Christ. And he says to people over and over again, effectively in this letter, you have to live this now. Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. You either put the love of Jesus into practice or basically you're nothing. So in this passage, he gives an example about how Christians 2,000 years ago and we today have the opportunity to live that kind of merciful love we see in the gospel passage and how we should not take for granted that we're anywhere near that love, even at the very beginning of an encounter with a stranger. So please, this week, take this passage directly. It's written 2,000 years ago to Christians just like us. Take it written to you. Here's the scenario. He writes to Christians, James, you're in the assembly, exactly what we're doing right now. You're in church, worshiping. Into the assembly come two people. One person, the first one, is a person dressed with gold rings and fine clothing. Just please accept the premise here. Sometimes people say, oh, I don't have any discrimination about clothing or not. Ah, you're not as holy as you think you are. Just accept the premise. The person comes in, has fine clothing, gold rings, these are attractive things, you're attracted to the person. Let's say you're that person. May I use you as a victim? The second person, you look wonderful, the second person comes in, he's economically poor, and he's wearing shabby clothing. Yes, even you angels, even you seraphim and cherubim, you are not attracted to this because shabby clothes are ugly, because whatever it takes to imagine it, you're just not attracted to him. So, attracted, not attracted, it's all fine. The question is, how are you as a Christian going to respond to these people? James first gives a scenario that's entirely realistic. The person with the gold rings and the fine clothing, you give that person your attention and you say, please sit here, presumably in a good seat. That sounds pretty good to me. The second person, you don't know either of them. Implicit here is they are both strangers. You got to get that. They're both strangers. The person who's wearing the shabby clothing, you say, stand there. Purely because of his appearance and how you feel about it. Or sit at my feet. So why does this matter? Is it a matter of being rude? James is really direct. When you do this, are you not making distinctions among yourselves? Yes, you are, obviously. And have you not become judges with evil designs? That is a lot. Why does this matter? God loves, well, it's, it's the very beginning of the passage, the first verse. Show no partiality if you're Christian. That expression has a very specific meaning in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's about God. To show partiality is to give favor to one person, but not to give that favor to another person. The Scripture tells us over and over, God shows no partiality. Jesus teaches this directly. God has the sun rise and the rain fall on evil people and good people, rich people and poor people. 
If I show partiality, I give you this favor of the good seat, but I do not give it to you when I can, I pull away from God. I make the free choice not to love the way God loves. I am less holy than I can be. I am a Christian. I know that Jesus teaches that true love is feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, number three on the list, Matthew 25, clothe the naked, care for the ill, visit the imprisoned. I, Paul O'Brien, know that. When I choose to not welcome you, as Jesus teaches, because you're a stranger, to return love to him because you're the least of my brothers, I choose to reject the love of Jesus Christ. And this is the number three thing on the list on which he judges me eternally and now. When I choose to show this partiality, I really harm you, even if you don't know it. I demean you, I put you down, I make you less. And guess what? I bet you've been through this before. When I give you the good place, Lynn, perhaps if you're a good person, that's a good thing. But if you're arrogant, if you're entitled, if you think you're better because you've got those gold rings and that fine clothing, if you happen to be a United States citizen, I mean, then maybe that's not so good for you. When I choose to do this, it's an important detail. I do it in the assembly. I do it before other people. I teach other people how to sin in my sin. And do not miss what James says. I become a judge. I wasn't before I did this, but in doing this, I evaluate you as superior and you as inferior. Some people are superior and inferior in the mind of God, in the love of God. God is truly our only judge. For me to do this, I've become a judge with evil designs. What would the devil more like in that situation than for me to treat you as better, you as lesser, to divide us and to show everybody this behavior. So it's pretty striking. What's the alternative? The alternative is I could live as a Christian. I could welcome you and give you this good place. I can very easily welcome you and give you this good place. If there's one good place and one mediocre place, perhaps I would give you the mediocre one and you the good one because you deserve a break because God has particular compassion for people who are suffering in practical ways. If I do this, I choose to say yes to the love of God. I choose to live what Jesus teaches is true love. I do it in front of other people. I teach people a way of holiness, not a way of sinfulness. I do not judge anybody. In fact, I'm working for the one who is all of our judge. And I tell the devil, absolutely not. I am not going to behave this way. Maybe I've done it before, but I am not going to do what you would have me do. I invite you to take this to heart and put it into your reflection this week. I believe part of the point of this is, if I can't deal with how I encounter strangers from the get-go, and the way I see people, and my possible partiality, I'm never going to get anywhere near living that much deeper, merciful love of Jesus. But if I do take this seriously, at the beginning of the encounter, it's stepping into that love of Jesus. It's stepping into Him who hopefully will lead me toward that deeper, more merciful love so that I can grow in it.
To conclude, when I read that letter of James, I'm partially encouraged because we all deal with these issues, right? We're all limited. We all have our list. I have my list of people to whom I'm attracted. I have my list of people to whom I'm, I am definitely not attracted. I'm not going to give you the list, but we all have these lists, right? It's comforting to me to know that 2,000 years ago and since the fall of humanity, this is what it is to be part of a fallen, sinful world. It's discouraging to me that I believe, you can give me another idea after Mass, I believe there has never been a culture in the history of the world that is more focused on judging based on appearances, focused on money and material wealth than our society. I mean, we have topped, we have blown the record on this one. It's the nature of social media, right? It's the nature of so much. We base our opinions on appearance and money and we judge one another and interact with one another based on this. The good news is, if you're a Christian, that offers an unparalleled opportunity to share the truth of Christ with this world. If we choose to be different, we will be seen and God the Father will be glorified through us. This parish is filled with people who day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, put this into practice. A point of pride of this parish is that we don't just welcome strangers like, hey, we are day in and day out reaching out to people with rings and particularly people with shabby clothing to break these barriers and to put this love into actual practice. That includes plenty of you. So I am really encouraged that this new week can be a time that we grab this word and we receive this Eucharist and we get out there into this city and help build the kingdom of God.